Well, good morning. Welcome to a Sunday school class. Um, this morning we're going to look at uh, a snapshot, thumbnail sketch of the uh, prophet Elijah um, in his ministry. So let's open in prayer and get right in this because there, there's a lot to cover. Uh, we will be um, looking at numerous verses so that we understand something of this man's ministry. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this gorgeous day. We thank you for this privilege once again to gather as a redeemed people under the grace of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to stand righteous in him. Help us now, Lord, to have eyes to see and to understand the redemptive history of salvation and your sovereign plan being worked out through the pages of scripture as we look back to see how you dealt with your own. Help us with understanding we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Elijah, that great prophet, appeared on the stage of public action during one of the darkest periods of Israel's history. A sad history. If you uh, are familiar with the Old Testament at all, he's introduced to us at the beginning of 1 Kings chapter 17. And all one needs to do is read the previous chapters to discover the terrible state that God's people were in spiritually uh, dark time in redemptive history. Um, Israel had grievously and blatantly departed from Jehovah, Almighty God. And never before had they sunk so low than what we're about to look at here in a moment. Now last week, if you recall, we looked at the kingdom split. Jeroboam, Rehoboam. Jeroboam in the north of Israel, uh, Rehoboam, Solomon's son, in the south. You hear that? Is that me? Rehoboam in the south, um, otherwise known as Judah. Well, today what we're going to look at is 58 years past that point. Since the time of the kingdom split, 58 years have passed following the death of Solomon. And during that brief period of time, no less than seven kings had reigned over the ten tribes in the north, again, known as Israel. And without exception, every single one of them did evil in the sight of the Lord. Every one of them. Now, the first of those kings, as we looked at last week, was Jeroboam. And concerning him, we, we read that, if, if, as you recall, he made two golden calves. He put one in Beersheba and he put the other in Dan. And he said this, if you can open your Bibles to 1 Kings, we'll begin in chapter 12 and we will, we will kind of move through um, into chapter 18 this morning. In 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse 28, it says, So the king took counsel and he made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, 
your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other in Dan. Did I say Bethel or Beersheba a little bit ago? Did I say, okay, my bad, Bethel. This thing became great sin in the eyes of God. The people were ordered by Jeroboam to go and worship an image. And he says, this is your God who brought you out of bondage. Jeroboam went on to make a house of high places. He corrupted the priesthood. And he had, he had stalled into divine service those that were not from the tribe of Levi. Which is the tribe that was to perform the priestly services, as you know. Notice in 1 Kings 12 and verse 31, he also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month like the feast that was in Judah and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel sacrificing to the calves that he made and he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. Okay, now next in line, was Nadab. I don't know what's going on here, but I'm going to try to move around a little bit. I apologize, I don't know what that is. Notice next, King Nadab, chapter 15, verse 25. Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, began to reign over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel two years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin which he made Israel to sin. So there you have it, like father, like son. Now, he was, he was succeeded on the throne by the very man who murdered him. Now, we're going to go through and we're going to look at some kings and then we're going to look at that which kind of sets the stage for the arrival of Elijah. Okay, that's what we're doing. So you had Jeroboam. You had Nadab, and then notice here in 1 Kings 15 and 27, Baasha. Baasha, the son of Ahijah, of the house of Issachar, conspired against him, and Baasha struck him down at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. For Nadab and all Israel were laying siege in Gibbethon. So he kills him. He's on the throne now. Next came a man named Elah, who was a drunkard. So here you have a staggering drunk who, in turn, was a murderer. Chapter 16 now, in verse 8. In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, the son of Baasha, began to reign over Israel in Tirzah. And he reigned two years. But his servant Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him when he was at Tirzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, who was over the household of Tirzah. Zimri came and struck him down and killed him in the 27th year of Esau, king of Judah, and he reigned in his place. Then his successor, Zimri, uh, was guilty of treason, 1 Kings 16.20. And then he's followed by Omri. And we are told in chapter 16, verse 25, 
Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. Imagine that. He walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. God hates idolatry. So this evil cycle continues. And then there's Omri's son, who was even more evil than his father. The infamous Ahab. Chapter 16, verse 30. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the, sons of, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife. Now he's saying, if you think this is bad, look what this brother did. He took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal. And his name means with him is Baal. Get that. With him is Baal king of the Sidonians and went and served Baal and worshipped him. So here you have Ahab, the son of Omri, who it said of Omri did worse than all others before him. And then comes his son who does worse than his own father. And he marries this heathen princess, which is loaded, as you know, with the most gruesome consequences uh, when you look at the, the end of their lives here. But in a very short period of time, the true and pure worship of the one true God, Jehovah, vanished from the land of the north, Israel, into gross idolatry. This is dark. This is wicked. The golden calves are worshipped in Dan and Bethel, even 58 years later, placed there by Jeroboam. So it was openly declared at this time, beloved, that Baal lived and Jehovah ceased to be. Israel. First Kings 16. Ahab. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made Asherah, or Asherah, which is a uh, wooden carved uh, image of a female deity, sets this up. And Ahab did more to to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So here you see this long line of dark leaders. From Jeroboam, down the, down the line 58 years later, to Ahab, who marries Jezebel, who was basically, he was, this is a puppeteer situation. Here's Jezebel like this. Jezebel pulled the strings of Ahab. She ruled that house. Jezebel ruled that house. And Ahab basically did pretty much whatever Jezebel wanted him to do. So in the midst of all this darkness, God now sets the stage of prophetic proclamation. 
in the midst of this dark, dismal era of Israel, God sends a man on the scene. So this is where we transition now in our series on From Dust to Glory. We transition now into the role of the Old Testament prophets. We'll look at Israel today. Next week we'll see um, Isaiah. And then we will see uh, Jeremiah after that. So this here, Elijah, is the trailblazing prophet. He's going to lead the way for the likes of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and right on down the line. And the function and the purpose um, of God's prophets were indeed to foretell the truth, to foretell that which was going to occur. But even more than that, the primary purpose of a prophet was not so much as to foretell the future, but what? To foretell the word of God. To declare the truth of Almighty God. So they served kind of as a prosecutor, if you will. A mouthpiece of God. To come and, and point their finger at these idolatrous people in proclaiming the truth of Almighty God. So they would foretell the forth tell the truth of God. And these men stood alone. You read the Old Testament, these men were loners for the most part. They were reviled by the very people that God sent them to to proclaim the truth. They were a hated breed. They were mocked, they were belittled, they were murdered. Jeremiah, Elijah rather, uh, as you read the account, he goes on the run in fear of a woman, Jezebel. But these are uniquely called and gifted men of God. And they served a very specific role. They were God's divine agent, agents of prosecution. And he spoke directly through them. So here Elijah is to file suit, if you will, against God's people, and he begins with the first in line, the king. So he appears on scene now to confront the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And Elijah is introduced to us in a very strange way. When we read about him, uh, you, you see no lineage of the man who his mother is, who his father is, where he was born. Who's that remind you of? Melchizedek, right? Nothing's known about him. Nothing's told of this man's ancestry or his early life. And there's a typical reason for this. And again, it is, is, is like the history of Melchizedek. And it's simply shrouded in sacred mystery. And I think by the end of our study, we'll get a sense as to why. But these are the mysteries of God, withheld from us. This man just shows up. So spiritual death at this time covered almost everything. This is a very dark season of redemptive history by the very ones that were called by God to be God's people. It looked as though, you know, Satan had indeed... 
um, un, un, obtained mastery over the situation in the northern ten tribes known as Israel. And then notice in chapter 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Such authority, imagine that. King, it's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself in the brook um, Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook. And I have commanded that the ravens feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook that is east of the Jordan. The ravens bring him bread in the morning, bread in the evening. He drinks from the brook. After a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So Elijah, as we're going to see, is described as the troublemaker of Israel. He comes, it's not going to rain for three and a half years. And do you remember what three and a half years symbolizes throughout Scripture? What is it? Time of trial, time of trouble. And it didn't rain. And now if you jump over to chapter 18, beginning in verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. Isn't that interesting? I'm not the troublemaker, you are. In your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 450 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. He's calling them out. So, you see, this was Jezebel's doing here in, in, in gathering these prophets and priests. 850, 850 pagan leaders. One man calls them out. Then in verse 20, So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and he said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. People didn't answer a word. Then Elijah said, or verse 21, Elijah came near to all the people. Stop waffling, stop wavering. Then Elijah said, I, even I only am left, a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. So the truth of Almighty God had become infected with pagan ritual. Synergism was always the problem in Israel. I told you I was in Africa uh, in May for three weeks and the same problem that Israel faced is the same problem in the church in Africa. Synergism. The truth of God and all kinds of cultural practices. 
voodoo, witch doctors, all this nonsense. In the church. So Elijah says, stop shifting. Then verse 23, let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. You call upon the name of your God, I'll call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he's the real deal. He's God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourself one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire on it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. They're jumping, they're leaping, they're praying, they're calling out. And at noon, notice this, I love this, Elijah mocked them. Cry aloud. He's your God, for either he is musing or he's relieving himself. Or maybe he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud. Notice, they cut themselves after, as was their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. You see, what's at stake here? is the central truth of the Word of God, for which there's always a substitute somewhere. Right? Always a substitute somewhere. This is, this, this is the fight for the truth of the one true God. So here they, they fall to the ground, and after what they're about to witness, Elijah, or I should say God, has control of the situation. Notice. And as at midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, that there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me, and all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seals of seed. And he put the wood in order to cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water, pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. So they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. They did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and he said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and you have turned their hearts back. Notice, 
Then fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord is God. They fall to the ground and they confess. The supernatural work of God. He sends one man one voice to proclaim one truth, the sovereign true God confronting their paganism, confronting their idolatry, confronting all kinds of opposition. And then he mocks them. That takes courage. And they need to be mocked. They should be mocked. And God consumes this thing. And they fall down in repentance. And then notice, these are wicked crimes against God. So they fall to their faces, verse 39, and then Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon, Kishon and slaughtered them. Is that harsh? Is anybody offended? You don't have to raise your hand, but is anyone offended by this? We should never be offended by this. Because the ultimate offense is against Almighty God. Holy, righteous. He's the creator of all. And this leadership has perverted the truth of God. And allowed in all of this idolatry. So there is your introduction to Elijah. I think you're all familiar with uh, that account. But to jump ahead a little bit, if you look at 2 Kings in chapter 2, the ministry of the man continues. And then as you know, he has... uh, a young lad that he's raising up as a disciple known as Elisha. And in uh, 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 11, he and Elisha are there and as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven and Elisha saw it and cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his clothes and tore them into two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. And then Elisha would carry on. So here's the man who, who comes out of nowhere. And at the end of his ministry, God takes him up and out of sight. What a way to go. Right? Elijah never died. Enoch was another man who was, was taken up by God. Now it's interesting that to this very day, Orthodox Jews, like next door here at this school, every time of the year during Passover, they leave an empty chair at the table. 
And what do you think that is reserved for? The coming of Elijah. Elijah didn't die. He ascended to heaven. And he stood there with Elisha. So since he never died, their expectation is that Elijah would return in order to herald the coming of who? Messiah. That's what they're expecting. That's what they're waiting for. And why is that? It's because they're unbelievers. It's, it's, not, it's not cute. It's, it's not something to be admired. It's sad. It's not something that we mock, but it, it's sad. You know, I think a lot of times Christian goes, Christians say, how, how admirable. You know, they have a place for Elijah. No, it's not admirable. Because it, it, it shows you that they're rejecting Jesus Christ. So, for the remainder of our study, for your Jew, Orthodox Jewish friends, if you have any, you can uh, lead them um, in the remainder of this study that points out something very significant and essential to salvation and redemptive history. So here's this wild stranger who comes out of nowhere, Elijah. The wild prophet. And what's interesting is that just before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, there was another wild prophet who came. We know where he comes from, but he lived out in the wilderness and he ate locusts and wild honey and wore uh, um, clothing made out of what? Camel's hair. And who is it? John the Baptist. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 1, if you would, please. Remember, the angel came to uh, Zacharias, the husband of Elizabeth, who was old in age, who was barren, unable to have children. Zacharias is uh, serving in the temple, as was his duty, and he was in the rotation. So he's in the temple at this time serving, and he is visited by the angel Gabriel. And he tells him that they're going to have a child. In verse 14, you will have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth. He will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of who? Of Elijah. You remember when John the Baptist came on the scene and he's out preaching. He's confronting, just like Elijah confronted the the, the prophets of Baal, he's confronting the scribes and Pharisees of the day. And he's telling them to repent. He's calling them a bunch of hypocrites. <laughs> These men are men of courage. So they're out checking him out. They're out, who is this wild man? Because they know, they know that it is time for the appearance of Messiah. Somewhere, somehow, someway, though they knew the scriptures, they didn't know the meaning of the scripture, so they completely missed him. 
But notice, they did inquire. They asked him, are you Elijah who is to come? Well, John said, no. They said, are you Elijah? He said, no. Now, later on, it's interesting what Jesus says. In Matthew chapter 11 and verse 13, Jesus said, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until who? John. John the Baptist. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. This is Jesus. And notice he said, he who has ears, let him hear. John is Elijah who is to come. Now, if you would, turn back to the very last book of the Old Testament. Malachi. The last Old Testament book and the last prophetic word to be spoken. Verse 4, chapter 4 of Malachi. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That's how the Old Testament closes. 400 years later, this wild man appears on the scene out preaching in the wilderness, eating wild locusts and honey. The Pharisees confront him. Jesus said, he is Elijah who is to come. Later on, in chapter 17 of Matthew, verse 10, it says, the disciples asked him. They said, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus said, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has already come. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. And what did they do to Elijah who was to come? What did they do to the one who came into the spirit and the power of Elijah? They cut off his head. The one who came in the power and spirit of Elijah is the one who pointed his finger as God's prosecutor at Herod, who was in sin with his brother's wife. And he called him out. And Herodias, his wife, said, you know what? I'm I'm tired of hearing his voice. (laughs) But Herod kind of had this thing where he, he liked to hear the voice of John. So he locked him up, again, under pressure of his wife, right, Herod, that really wasn't his wife, just like Ahab was, you know, getting pulled around by the puppet strings of Jezebel. Elijah of old confronts Ahab, confronts Jezebel. Elijah, who is to come, confronts Herod. And they lock him up because of pressure from his wife that really wasn't his wife. 
And then Herod, as they're celebrating his birthday, Herodias' man- manipulative action here sends his, her young daughter in to dance in a very seductive manner for Herod. And he said, look, <laughs> that's pretty moving. I'll give you anything you want up to half the kingdom. And by pressure of her mother, what did she ask for? The head of John the Baptist on a silver platter. So Herod, under pressure, didn't feel great about it, but he did it. And they go down to the chamber, and they cut off his head, and they bring it on a platter. That's Elijah who's to come. So you see how the Old Testament foreshadows again and again and again the ministry and the purpose and the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now where else do we see Elijah in the New Testament? Hmm? The Mount of Transfiguration, brother. That is right. In Matthew chapter 17, Jesus ascends up the mount with Peter, James, and John. And all of a sudden, here's Jesus in a physical body, and he's transformed before their very eyes into glory. They fall on their faces in fear. And there's Jesus. Who's he he speaking with? Concerning the cross, concerning the purpose for which he came, he speaks to one who represents the law, Moses, and the one who represents the prophets, Elijah. So there's Jesus transfigured, talking with Elijah and Moses. Peter, James, and John shudder in fear as they ought. And then Peter speaks up, hey, I have a great idea. Right? And he wanted to build three altars here in this place. Remember, Moses wasn't to enter into the promised land, right? Physical promised land, remember? He sinned, he struck the rock. God said, you shall not enter into the promised land. Well, obviously he entered into the promised land because he's in the presence of God. But in this physical place, this physical land, which he was not to enter, there he stands with the Savior. Moses and Elijah. So... Just as the absence of uh, any mention of Melchizedek's birth or his death was divinely designed by God to foreshadow the eternal priesthood and kingship of Jesus, so too the fact that we know nothing about Elijah, you know, his father and his mother, is further um, see the supernatural. Um, truth of God to portray Elijah as the typological forerunner of who? Jesus Christ. Through John the Baptist, the forerunner of Messiah. So see how interesting it is? There is Elijah of old pointing his finger, confronting the people of God, pointing his finger at the king, calling out the prophets of Baal, calls fire down from heaven, 
the last words of the Old Testament prophesy that before the coming of the Mighty One, before the coming of Messiah, Elijah will come. And sure enough, there he is, John the Baptist. As Jesus said, if you're willing to accept it, Elijah has come. So anytime you're with a Jewish friend who's leaving a seat open at the table of Passover, you might want to point him to these scriptures saying, look, Elijah's come. It was John the Baptist. And his purpose was to pave the way for Jesus Christ, who is Messiah, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. That's it, amen? Amen. Anybody want to add to that before we close? In prayer? This is from where he was from. Same place that Jonah was from. We know... I'm sorry. We, the thing is, we don't know who his parents were. We don't know if he was born there. But... Yeah. Anybody else? Any, any input? Anything you want to add? Any thoughts? Because we have about two minutes. Well, we have one minute now. We never want to view the New Testament apart from the Old. Amen? Our hermeneutic. A hermeneutic is how you interpret Scripture. Our hermeneutic from Genesis to Revelation is Jesus. Some people's hermeneutic is the ethnic nation of Israel or the land of Israel. That is not our hermeneutic. Jesus is our hermeneutic and if Jesus is the hermeneutic, you will have a steady, clear flow of understanding the scriptures as a whole rather than seeing a division like two peoples and all that type of thing. There's a one people of God, always has been, always will be. Amen? Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the mighty ministry of of a man like Elisha. And the typological truth that led to the forerunner of our Messiah, the only Messiah, the only Savior, Jesus Christ, that was John the Baptist. And Lord, how wonderful it is to see all the connecting points of Scripture. We thank you for it. We pray that you would bless us by this glorious truth. Help us to under, have a greater understanding and appreciation for all that you have done and continue to do on our behalf for your glory and the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.